Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Corey, if you want to come on up, let's just, uh, let's just welcome Corey as he opens God's Word for us together. Uh, Good morning. Welcome to Mercy Hill. It's great to see all these awesome familiar faces and some new uh, faces, Um, but we're all part of the same body of Christ, and so it's a privilege to just worship together, be together. Uh, This morning we're going to look at Luke 15, specifically the parable son, verses 11 through 32, and if you you haven't been with us or maybe missed couple weeks. Um, Two weeks ago, Yemi preached on the first part of this chapter. Uh, He preached through the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost sheep. He did an awesome job. Um, And then last week, we took a little break as Johnny addressed uh, some of the events that happened in Charlottesville um, and just did an amazing job. So I just want to say, if you get a chance, please listen out on the website uh, on the podcast because it's it's worth a listen um, and it's challenging in a good way. So let me just pray for us as we just dive into God's word this morning and that uh, my hands stop being so clammy and wet and cold because I'm a little nervous. But <clears throat> Lord Jesus, thank you, Father, for your word. God, thank you that, um, Father, we can know the mind of God. We can know, Father, what you have to say for us through the Bible We thank you that you have given that to us, Lord, that we can trust in your word, Father, that we can be transformed by it. And I pray that your word goes forth this morning, Lord, that it speaks to us in our hearts, in our minds, and Father, that we leave here not the same, but we are changed because we've encountered you. Lord, we pray and ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we get to the prodigal son, The setting has already been set through the first two parables. We see that Jesus has gathered with his disciples, but he's also speaking to tax collectors and sinners who are gathering near to him. These people who uh, most don't want anything to do with them, but they're gathering to listen to his words. But not only that, but also the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, are also gathering to come and listen. All these different people from different walks of life, uh, some of them that don't even kind of mingle together, the Pharisees and the sinners, tax collectors, they they don't talk, but they're listening in on what Jesus has to say. And so in the first two parables, Jesus addresses this idea of how God delights in finding that which was lost. And it's these amazing stories. And then we turn to the prodigal son, which is very similar. It has a very different kind of turn and and theme to it. And in the first part um, of this book, we get a glimpse at who the main character of the story is. And what I want to do this morning is kind of break it up into four scenes, if you will. Imagine this parable as a story or as a play, right? So in plays, you have acts and you have scenes. So the first act, and if you want to throw that up on the screen, act one, scene one, once you get that up there, is when the father divides his property. And in verse 11, we see who the main character is. Jesus says to them, there was a man who had two sons. So it's really important, this verse 
first verse is very important because we see right away that the main character is the father. It's about a man who had two sons. And let's get into the text. So verses 11 through 12. And I'll have little pictures if you want to look. Um, You can keep that first picture up. Yeah, perfect. So as they're gathered near, Jesus starts to talk to him again and shares this parable. He says, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Right away in the story, in these verses, there's tension that arises. And you'll be like, I don't get it. He just asked for some money. It's like, okay, like, where's my allowance, right? Like, where's my money? But it's totally different because he's asking for an inheritance. And during this time, you could equivalent this to the son asking and almost wishing that his father was dead. Because when, when do you get an inheritance, right? It's when uh, your family members, your parents, whoever it is, after they pass away, right, you receive this. So right away in the story, there's tension. The younger son comes to his father. Father, I want my money now. I want it now. I don't, I don't care if you're alive. I don't care that you're here. I want it now. And by doing that, he completely shames the father. It's complete disrespect. Not only that to the father, but the, to the family as a whole, because the older brother who will also take part in the inheritance is sitting there kind of like, what? He's taking it now. You know, all these things running through his head. This is important because when you think of a play or a story, so this scene right here, it's creating tension. And this picture good. You have, you know, they're not in it, but the people kind of crying in the background. So sets a little bit more of the setting here. So let's move on now to the second scene in this parable. Verses 13 through 16. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. So all of a sudden, the story takes a really sad twist, right? The son, first, he's like, I want my money. Then he goes off. He leaves, creating even more of a divide. And the whole community is watching, not just the father and and, and the sons, but the people around are watching as his son totally leaves. He doesn't look back, just creating more disrespect with the family. You can imagine maybe in your head even what the family's thinking, the father, the sons, kind of like, I'm over this kid, right? He's gone. Then we flip and we see a glimpse of where the son is at. He leaves the family, and what does he do? He squanders everything, right? Gone. Who knows how long, it doesn't say how long it took him, you know, so maybe it was a day, maybe it was you know a couple of weeks or whatever, but he spends everything in reckless living. And then on top of that, it says once he spent everything, a severe famine hits the land. Talk about bad luck, right? It's like uh, if you're on your way to work, but you're already late, you wake up in the morning, you're mad, and you're running late, so you're like 30 minutes late to work, and on top of that, you popped your tire or something like that, right? Like, could you imagine that feeling? Obviously, this is 10 times worse. He's taken inheritance, all this money from his family. And on top of that, this famine hits the whole land. And so in order to just eat, in order to survive, he hires himself out to feed pigs 
And in this moment of just like him being in utter despair, he thinks to himself, man, I wish I could eat pig's food. <laughs> you know, like how far has he gone in, in himself and just how lost is he that he's like, I need something. Can I just eat something? And that pig's food looks so good, you know, <laughs> it's pretty gross. But that's where he's at in the story. And we would, uh, we would assume um, in this story that at this point, he's pretty far gone in himself. He doesn't know, he doesn't know what to do, what's going to happen next. So then we turn to the third scene in this first act of the story, focusing on the younger son in 17 through 19. It says, but when he came to his, himself, came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. Then he devises this plan. He says, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He comes to his senses, which is a good thing. And he realizes that, man, my servants that work for my father, they have it good. I'm here and I want pig's food, but even though they're servants, they are treated well. So my plan, I'm going to go back, right? At this point, there's still the tension and the distance between him and the family, but he wants to go back. Not only that, but he's going to plead, right? We see the first part, it's almost like I'm going to repent. I'm going to repent to the Father. I've sinned before heaven. I've sinned before you, Father. And then his second part, in order to survive, help, let me be a servant to you. So I can just have food that I can be taken care of. He's at the end of himself. And we would assume that he would have to really plead his case to the father, right? Because in the story, he's just screwed everything up. I mean, when he goes back to the father, we're like, there's no way the father is going to listen to what he has to say, right? If anything, he'll sit there and be like, you done? All right, that's it. Why don't you go? Right? Almost disown his son. But we see this beautiful scene when the son comes home. Let's turn to uh, verse 20. It says, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but... The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. What just happened? <laughs> what just happened? Right? Like this story, as you read it, as it builds and builds, you're like, man, this kid is ruining everything. He's given away all this, all this money, his inheritance, the father graciously gave to him. And he decides, I'm going to beg to be a servant. And when he's far off, not even when he gets to the doors, the father runs after him and embraces him. We're, ex we're expecting that the father's going to disown him because he shamed the whole family, his friends, the community, but instead the father shames himself when he runs after his son. Because during this time, patriarchs, fathers and the families, they didn't run. Running was for children. It was maybe some of the older kids, maybe the women ran. 
Father's respectable people of their household did not run, and the father runs straight to his son with open arms. What love. The son begins to repent, but before he can beg to become a servant, the father restores him. He puts a robe on him, a sign of the best clothes in the house, kind of like, here you go, here's a cashmere sweater, here's some, you know, silk pajamas, I don't know. <laughs> he gives him a ring, a sign of authority, and he gives him shoes. The only people that wore shoes were the family members. Servants didn't have shoes, a symbol of his free man, but really a symbol of him restoring him back into the family, welcoming him back him, welcoming him back in. So we see the father's love for his son, and this is an amazing picture for us. So while Jesus tells a story, he's really giving us a glimpse into the love that the Father has for his people. At the love that the Father has for us here in this building, at the love that the Father has for those who are far off, the tax collectors, the sinners, the people he's talking about. Because Jesus' love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin or wrongdoing. And maybe you've experienced this. A song that we sing in our church, a song that's sung all, you know, over five million times annually around the world is Amazing Grace. And probably hey, everyone's heard it, maybe you haven't, maybe you've just heard somebody talk about it. But the amazing thing is this, is the story of the writer of this hymn, John Newton. A man who grew up with a Christian mom and a father who was a seaman, a kind of rough and tough guy. At a young age, his mother passes away. So he takes on to the liking of his father and his image and follows after his way of living. So he becomes a seaman and it eventually leads him to be a captain of a slave trading boat. John Newton becomes a captain of a boat that barbarically takes people from their homelands and goes and sells them off to others to make a fortune. I mean, what a sinner, right? You know, like this guy is selling people off to make money. But the amazing thing is this. Even he has been redeemed. And on March 9th in 1748, a brutal storm hits his slave trading boat. And the next day during the storm, he cries out to the Lord. And these are his own words. He says, that 10th of March in a day much remembered by me. And I've never suffered it to pass unnoticed since that year, 1748. The Lord came from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. What amazing imagery and words, not just that the Lord calmed the storm and saved him, but saved him in an even better way, that he now has hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Who, who person in John Newton, who we may view as a sinner by on comparison, someone who traded human beings for money, was welcomed by Jesus Christ with arms open, Right? He, he comes before Jesus in his moment of despair, but he cries out to him. And Jesus doesn't turn him away. Like the parable, the father didn't turn the son away. But he sits there and he says, come to me, right? He welcomes him in. And John Newton's life has changed. We have a song that's sung five million times annually in the church. How many people have worshipped to it? Lives been changed by this hymn, Amazing Grace. The Lord has an invitation in this parable that is available for us today. Just as Jesus tells a story to people who are hated during his time, sinners, 
tax collectors, people who scam people out of, out of money, take advantage of them. He's speaking to them and he's saying, listen, my arms are open. The Father's arms are open. Come to me. Receive rest. Receive all these things. They're welcomed in by the love of Christ. And this invitation is available to us today. So right away, this is only the first part of this story. And it's this amazing picture. We could spend the whole morning on this. But it's important to go through all the way because this story is a whole. And the second part has some pretty hard things to say, but some pretty encouraging things to say. So we're going to turn now to act two of the story, if you will, which starts in verse 25. And in the first part of the, the parable, we get a picture of the gospel. But here's the other part. It's not the whole gospel. It's not just that Jesus welcomes sinners in, but there's more to it. So what is that? Let's read uh, starting in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Don't forget, there's a celebration going on. They are excited. There's music, food, the fattened calf. Like they are feasting up there. He heard music as he came to the house. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf. Whoa. There's not just like these words he's saying, right? There's it's more to it than that. Obviously, this has been in his heart. This has been building up. It's not just this moment that came out. You don't just shame your father, completely disrespect him to his face when he invited you into a celebration. But this is exactly what the older son does. He distances himself from the father when he becomes angry and he refuses to go in and he shames him just like the younger son. What's the difference between them, right? They're both shaming the father in this story. Then the father comes out after him And he tries to get him to go in, and then the son lets it all out. He says, I have slaved for you, in verse 29, and I have never disobeyed your command. The older son is listing what he has done. He's listing the ways that he deserves what the father gave the younger son instead of himself. And after the younger son lost everything. Are you kidding me? But truthfully, and this is where I want to kind of zoom in on, is that the older son is actually listing what he valued most in his life. He is listing what he truly cared about. It's himself. He never cared about the father. If he actually cared about the father, he would have delighted in the father and what he had for him already, right? He would have already had a fattened calf and and a party with his friends if he actually cared about the father. He wasn't working to honor the father, but trying to prove himself according to his own standards. A couple weeks ago, I was uh, here at the church, and 
So I have to change the AC filters and do a bunch of things. John's like, just go and do this. I'm like, oh, man, I can't do it. <laughs> so I'm here and, and, and changing the AC filters, and John and Luke are discussing something. So I climb up. I'm fixing it. And then I'm like, hey, Luke, you should uh, take a picture of me and post it on like, social media on the Facebook page. That way the church knows I actually do stuff around here. You know, like take a picture of it, post it up. Like, Corey's working hard, all these things. And we laughed about it. And then I went home, and I'm reading the parable, and I thought, man, like, there's a part of me that actually believed that. And when I read this parable, I thought even more, I thought, man, I have an older brother mentality. I felt like if he actually did post that, a little part of me was like, man, I would feel good about myself. Like, people would know that I was working hard. In my mind, I'm thinking, it's a record of all these works that I can do, you know? It's building up, and maybe it's making me a better Christian, and it's making me better before God, And all these things, I'm working towards these things. But I was trying to keep the record of what I did to prove it to myself like the older brother. I have slaved for you. I've never disobeyed your commands. But I think we do this too. And maybe it's as simple as just coming to church. Boom, check that off the list. I came to church. Lord, you you know, what do you have for me? Like, what do you have for me, Lord? I, I came to church. Maybe it's just serving in children's ministry. Maybe it's by doing religious duties. Maybe it's just praying. Maybe it's giving money. Maybe it's whatever you think of in this moment in your head. They're not inherently bad things, but we can make them bad, such as the older son did. His mentality was trying to prove himself by his works, what he was doing, trying to earn his right to be with the father, trying to earn the fattened calf when that's not the case. And this is dangerous, and it leads to other tendencies. And Tim Keller has a book called The Prodigal God, and in this book, he writes about these tendencies that can come from living like an older brother. So I just want to say a couple of these, because I think they're really, really hard to hear, but they're really, really good. He says that living like the older brother can lead to these in our lives, seeing someone else as always doing better than us in life. Do you ever feel like, you're like, man, I have prayed, I've done these things, Lord, I have trust in you, but yet this person is just succeeds far beyond me. They're doing so well. What is the problem with this? We hold grudges long and bitterly. We look down on people of other lifestyles, religions, or races. We experience life as joyless, and we have little intimacy in our prayer life. And as I read these things, I'm like, man, I experience those things. I'm like the older brother. And I think a lot of people struggle with these as well, and maybe some of us here this morning do. We become like the older brother to control our lives through our performance, through our works, through our own righteousness. But here's the glimmer of hope that we can change. Because in the brother's reaction to the father when he comes out after him, it tells us something about the story. It tells us that there was a cost that had to be paid. The younger brother went away. He squandered all these things. But what he did was he took a third of the inheritance that was to be shared. When the younger brother is brought back and given a robe and all these things and welcomed into the family, he's not just welcomed back in the family, but into that inheritance. And guess what? It's a lot smaller, right? The older son now has a smaller third of his, his property that he's been working for, that he's been work, working his whole life to get. This is mine. This, I deserve this. And so it tells us a cost has been paid, and it was paid by the older brother. 
for us the hope that we have, the hope to change from an older brother mentality is found through the price of forgiveness that Christ bought for us. See, Jesus Christ is our Savior. And it's because of His selfless love that we can move from an older brother mentality in life by being moved in our hearts by the cost that was paid by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have to be moved in our hearts. And there's joy in that. There's thanksgiving in that. Thank you, Lord, that I don't have to work on my own to earn things in life, that I don't have to earn a relationship with you. You paid that price. You paid for my sins. You bought that on the cross of Calvary. Lord, I can come before you because your arms are open wide. You've paid that price, so you're welcoming us in, Lord. I can rest in that hope. As we come to the end of the story, we see a couple things. We see that both brothers were lost the whole time. We see that both brothers had sinned against the father. And we might think, how? Like the older brother didn't do anything wrong, right? He didn't squander away the wealth. He didn't, you know, he did disrespect the father, you know. But he worked hard. His whole life he worked hard. But the message in the whole of this parable is clear and it's dangerous. We can distance ourselves from the Father. We can distance ourselves from Jesus Christ by living recklessly, by disobeying all His commands, by squandering away everything He has for us. Or we can sin against Jesus. We can distance ourselves from the Father by obeying all of them diligently. I think the third way is to not just be in the middle, not to just try and be perfect, but to go beyond that. To trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and not ourselves. Because at the end of the story, there's absolutely no resolution. How come there's no resolution in a story that is so annoying? You ever watch a movie where the ending just stops? Who's seen Inception? The ending of that movie? Uh, maybe I should have seen if you haven't seen it. There's absolutely no resolution. And it's annoying. And it's confusing. And you're like, what the heck is going on? But this is how Jesus leaves this story. There's no uh, reconciliation we see between the father and his older son. We don't know what happens between the brothers. We don't know if the family, like, they love each other and it's all happy and happy and woohoo. And that's because Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and scribes. A people who live religious lives, a people who feel like they got it all together. And he's calling them out. And we see that in the last two verses, 31 and 32, when the father answers the older son. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. All that I have is yours. It's been yours the whole time. There's never been a moment where it wasn't yours. You're part of the family. When we're a part of God's family, when we are in Christ Jesus, all he has for us is ours. We simply need to delight in him. We simply need to delight in the Father and what he has for us. And that 
will not even allow us to focus on living like an older brother to earn our rights, but rather to come to him, to delight him, and really, truly be satisfied in him. I feel like the first two songs we sang this morning was my sermon. Come to the altar, the Father's arms are open, and in the, in the chorus and the second song, Oh God, be my delight, be my everything, my soul satisfied. We could end with that. But Jesus ends with his open invitation. He's waiting with arms open for us to receive him, to delight in the one who paid the price for our sins on the cross, to draw close to him, to join in the celebration, to worship him. So as we close this morning, and with what uh, I feel like the Lord is saying this morning, I just have a question. It's simple, but it's really hard. It's will you choose to delight in Jesus Christ? Or will you choose to harden your heart before him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it it is challenging, Father. At times it's hard to understand, but at times it's black and white, Father, and you just, you speak to us through it. God, I thank you this morning that even in my own life, I have been challenged by your word, Father, the story of the parable of the prodigal son. God, I pray that others here would be challenged in their hearts, Lord, not just their minds. I pray they wouldn't harden their hearts to you, but that they would turn to you and delight in you, Lord, to worship you with everything, Father, that they would be transformed and that they wouldn't turn their eyes off of Jesus Christ, that they wouldn't look to the left or the right to live like a younger brother or to live like an older brother, but they would push forth by your grace and mercy and with the power of the Holy Spirit working in them to to look and run after the Father, to run after Jesus Christ in their own lives, Lord. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.